There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. France has a new Dauphin, 34-year-old new prime minister who will sit on a footstool next to the little emperor Macron, about whom more later. And glorious scenes in Ramallah in the West Bank of Palestine where lit up in gold is the statue of Nelson Mandela in Nelson Mandela Square as thousands of Palestinians sing the South African national anthem in honor of blessed South Africa's legal case at The Hague beginning tomorrow morning, putting Israel on trial for genocide. And a leading member of the Knesset says, Gaza should burn and all the people in it. And one of the most senior journalists in the country says, that's the settled will of the overwhelming majority of the Israeli public. And they wonder why they're on trial for genocide. And in the Ukraine, things go from bad to worse. They're all getting out to new villas, new chateaux bought by the ill-gotten gains of your taxes. The Russian army advance cannot now be stopped. And it's only a question of how far the Russians want to go. We'll be talking about Joe Biden, about Donald Trump, about Keir Starmer, and about Jeremy Corbyn. It's all coming up here on The Mother of All Talk Shows. You are listening to The Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. France has a new prime minister, 34-year-old. Only two things of interest about him. One is that he is married to a man. Ooh la la, well, it is France after all. And the more important thing is that he has never had a job. I'm not making that up. He has not ever had a job before. But he's the new prime minister of France. Mind you, nobody knew the name of the last prime minister of France who resigned for reasons not yet clear, at least not here. Given the privacy laws in France, it may be some time before the whole show is revealed. But the new prime minister will make no difference because no prime minister under Macron is going to strike out in any kind of independent way. It's a rubber stamp assembly, a rubber stamp parliament in France, as indeed it is in London. Just this evening, the Conservative government passed a law to make it a prosecutable offence to boycott Israel, to boycott anybody as a matter of fact. And that would, of course, 
have seen half the parliament in prison for calling for boycotts against apartheid South Africa in times gone by, times in which I sat in the parliament when the Labour leadership relentlessly, eventually relentlessly called for the absolute ostracism of apartheid South Africa, for boycott, divestment and sanctions of South Africa. Today's Labour leaders went to the dispatch box in the opening of the debate to say that they wholeheartedly opposed boycott, divestment and sanctions directed at the apartheid state of Israel. Well, that came as little surprise. Labour had two stories today. First of all, the former leader of the Labour Party and my parliamentary colleague for almost three decades, my colleague for almost four decades, was picked by the government of South Africa to join their delegation at The Hague tomorrow, about which more later. This is recognition of Jeremy Corbyn's decades of opposition to apartheid as an idea, to racism as a concept. In the same frame, four Labour members of Parliament went to Israel to show their support for the genocide that appears in court in The Hague tomorrow. Labour has killed itself. It has committed Hari Kiri, millions of people, not just millions of Muslim people, millions of other people, young people, politically conscious people, activist people, will never dream of casting a vote for Sir Keir Starmer, who turns out to be the man who, as director of public prosecutions, prosecuted the entirely innocent sub-postmasters who were ruined, many going to prison, because of a computer malfunction in the upper reaches of the post office, now subject to a record-breaking television drama, which has got the whole country asking, how could this have happened? Well, one of the main reasons why it happened is that the Labour leader, the unequivocal supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu's Zionist government, ordered their prosecution, and many subsequently went to prison. If, if there are any more reasons for not voting for Keir Starmer's Labour Party, I really don't need to hear them. Millions of people now know that this double-dealing, spineless hypocrite is unworthy of the position that he holds as the misnamed leader of the opposition in Britain. Not fit for purpose, either in this job or the job that he is looking for as Prime Minister of Britain. But all eyes will be not on France, not on Britain, but on the Netherlands tomorrow, where in Den Haag, The Hague, the International Court of Justice will consider a case tabled 
by South Africa. How fitting is that? Tabled by South Africa, but supported by everyone from the Maldives to Turkey, from the Arab League to most African countries, including Kenya, uh, which has been the recipient of a great deal of agitational lobbying by Israel over decades, whose prime minister today said he was fully in support of South Africa's move. It is a badge of honor for South Africa. And for those of us, like Corbyn, like me, who stood with South Africa during the dark days when Nelson Mandela was being called openly in Parliament a terrorist, when the African National Congress were routinely denounced as communists and that their leader deserved to be in the dungeons of apartheid. I, as I've told you before, actually gave some of my blood on the floor of the Guguletu police station in Cape Town, South Africa, during the apartheid era. After taking repeated blows from a racist apartheid white South African police officer who had the name of Campbell and whose antecedents were Scottish. I always knew never to trust a Campbell. We are proud of South Africa this evening. Whatever happens in this case tomorrow, but whatever happens can only be a travesty of justice if it does not find in favor of the South African case, an 80-page case, which largely consists of threading together the public statements of the Israeli leaders themselves, from Netanyahu downwards, including the defense minister, including the finance minister, including the economy minister, including all the high officers of the Israeli state. Their own statements condemn them of the crime of genocide, the ultimate crime introduced after the Second World War as a response to the genocide of the Holocaust visited upon tens of millions of people in Europe, six millions of them Jewish. It is the ultimate irony that in 2024, a state claiming falsely to be the state of the Jews should be facing a genocide case in the ICJ at The Hague because that state is now the nearest thing to what happened in Nazi-occupied Europe in the late 1930s and 1940s. It's almost impossible to exaggerate the irony of that. And yet, if you read South Africa's document, South Africa's case, it contains all the evidence that you could possibly imagine. Words that Goebbels himself could have spoken. Words that Eichmann himself could have evinced. Words that could have been said by the people in charge of the ovens, the death camps of Auschwitz, Treblinka, and all the other terrible hellholes where millions of people 
were eviscerated, annihilated, not for anything that they had done, but merely because of who and what they were. What's the difference between what's happening in Gaza and what happened at the uprising of the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto? Nothing. There is no difference at all. In the Warsaw Ghetto, the Nazis put them behind wire and then massacred them. In Gaza, the Israelis put them behind wire and then massacred them over and over and over and over again. So many times, even a scholar of the issue like me would find it difficult to enumerate, to adumbrate all the genocidal assaults there have been on the people of Gaza. And not even just since 2008, when they voted for Hamas, long before it, I myself in the Jabalia camp witnessed Israeli border guards, Druze, I should tell you, not Jews, Druze, Israeli border guards, were forcing women with toothbrushes to clean the road in the street in which they lived. I witnessed it in a jeep belonging to the United Nation. The crimes committed by a state which claims to be the state of the people who suffered the last great genocide of millions is now in the dock. And I have no idea how they can possibly begin to mount a defense. And I say what I said on Sunday. If this is a court at all, if these judges are judges at all, if this justice is justice at all, then the case must be upheld and a cease and desist order must be issued. And if it is, it will have the most profound impact on the Palestinian case the Palestinian cause that there has ever been because it will make it, in many cases, legally impossible for Western governments, especially so-called democratic governments, to have anything to do with that genocide state in the future. The law says that genocide must be stopped and must be punished. Well, you're not going to be allowed to sell weapons, give succor and comfort, give diplomatic cover to a state found guilty of genocide because you yourself can then be prosecuted. Something which you saw a taste of before a House of Commons Select Committee this very week when David Cameron, who, when Prime Minister of Britain, described Gaza as the largest open-air prison in the world, and moreover said it must not be allowed to continue to be. Now that his Foreign Secretary was asked by the Select Committee if any official in the Foreign Office had pointed out to him 
that Israel was breaking international law in turning off water, turning off power, blocking food, making the people of Gaza starve whilst being bombed relentlessly 24-7 for 96 days. Do you know what his answer was? I can't remember every piece of paper that has crossed my desk. Well, you would have remembered that one, Mr. Cameron, because that one makes it illegal for you to do what you are doing, which is to facilitate the attacks on Gaza through the British base in Cyprus. It would make it illegal for you to be acting on behalf of a state which your own officials have warned you is in breach of international law. So it's unlikely that you are so incompetent, Mr. Cameron, that you did not know if you had been so advised, or not sure if this is worse or not, or you were being dishonest in front of that select committee of parliament this week. Either way, if the judgment in The Hague goes against Israel, it will be legally impossible for any Western government on pain of being prosecuted themselves for breaking the court's decision on genocide. It will change everything. It will knock BDS into a cocked hat. It will change all things utterly. And if the court finds Israel guilty of genocide and orders it to cease and desist in a presidential election year in the United States, it will surely be impossible even for the bloodthirsty gang of cutthroats, Biden and Blinken and co, to do other than tell Israel to cease and desist. At which point Netanyahu falls, maybe goes to prison. At which point everything in the world, the whole chessboard is turned upside down. So there's a lot riding on this case. Tomorrow in the UK, you'll be able to watch it live from 9 a.m. The press release from the court says 10 a.m. Bear in mind that 10 a.m. in The Hague is 9 a.m. in London. For the rest of you, you can do the maths. I expect that no court in all history will have been so closely watched. Now, it's possible, of course, that these judges will turn out to be the same kind of stooges that are getting ready to send Julian Assange into 175 years of penal servitude. That's possible. But here's my take. It's this. I said it on Sunday. Most of you disagreed with me. Many of these countries, including Joe Biden, must, as a matter of simple political logic, be looking for an exit ramp from what is turning out to be a nightmare of catastrophic proportions for everyone concerned, for the Arab rulers, 
for the state of Israel itself, for the Palestinian people above all, for the people of Lebanon who may soon be plunged into an all-out war between the partisans of the Lebanese resistance and the Zionist state, for the people of the Red Sea area, for the people of Yemen, for the people of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, for everybody. This is turning into a catastrophe. And there seems no way to stop it because the pit bull in charge, Netanyahu, his savage teeth stained by the blood of tens of thousands of people, has not only no incentive to stop it, he has every incentive to keep it going and to, if possible, expand it into a regional, maybe even a world conflagration. Because he's finished at the end of this conflict. He may be behind bars at the end of this conflict. So you have a classic case where the tail is wagging the dog where the client state is out of control and may cost Joe Biden, if this continues, any possibility of remaining president of the United States, the subject we are polling you about this very evening. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. This is the mother of all talk shows. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. First up, everybody's favorite American correspondent on the Mother of All Talk Shows, the one and only Garland Nixon. Garland, uh, here's my uh, first question the question we're posing in the poll. Will Netanyahu cost Biden the 2024 election? Uh, my immediate answer would be no, only because, and here's the caveat, because Joe Biden didn't have a prayer of winning the 2024 election before any of this happened. So no, Joe Biden's not going to win the election. Uh, it's one of many things that has convinced the American people that Joe Biden is not the man for the job in 2024. But let's face it, they're hiding this guy. He's lost and wandering around all the time. He's a very tragic figure. Um, so 
notwithstanding the uh, tragic events in Gaza, Joe Biden had, was was already a uh, you know he was a, a ghost of a politician um, to say to to give him you know the benefit of the doubt. I just watched him in the Oval Office with President Jokowi of Indonesia, one of the world's most important, biggest countries. And uh, Jokowi gave him a little soliloquy about the need for a ceasefire in Gaza, during which Biden looked comatose. But when he answered Jokowi, he immediately changed the subject without any reference to anything the president had said to the issue of climate change. I don't know if he had someone in his ear advising him to do that, but it's becoming so embarrassing. I mean, it's long ago been embarrassing, but it's now deeply debilitating to have a president that can't even answer the points being made by presidential guests sitting in his own front room. You know, it's a sad state of affairs when we would feel better if Joe Biden was obfuscating and ducking the question, if we thought that he had the cognitive ability to play those kinds of mental games. The sad truth is the likelihood is he didn't remember the question. And the first thing that came to his mind, I'm sure they gave him a number of talking points. One of them was climate change. So whatever question was asked, he had to reach for the, the closest talking point that he could grasp. And that was it. Right now, Joe Biden is nothing but a con at best. He's a conduit for power at best. He's something he's like an empty tube that the the oligarch can yell through at best. At worst, he's an embarrassment even to the to the people, to the puppeteers for puppets like Joe Biden. Now, uh, it's a big day in Europe tomorrow, uh, Garland. Uh, the whole world will be watching. The ghost of Nelson Mandela will be there in the courtroom as free South Africa uh, lives up to the hopes and dreams of hundreds of millions of people around the world and challenges in court the genocide that's going on in Gaza. Will anyone in the US be watching? Uh, absolutely. You know, that brings us to another point, and that is that Joe Biden and the leaders of the Democratic Party are now completely disassociated from their, I would, I wish what were their constituents, let's just say their voting base, their constituents are actually the people that are funding them, the oligarchs, billionaires, and, and rich Zionists. But the, I will say this, the majority of the people in the Democratic Party, probably a plurality of the people in the Republican Party will be watching this, most Americans. The polls tell us want a permanent ceasefire. And I would argue the majority of, of Americans are looking at what's happening and seeing clearly that this is an illegal action, that what we have is a very powerful army that is attacking a civilian enclave or prison, however you want to put it. And uh, sadly for them, they're losing that war. But um, uh, 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 South, uh, 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 South Africa, due to their history, they have the, the moral high ground here. And I, th I can't think of a better country under these circumstances than to be taking this action. And they will have tremendous support from the people of the, um, the, people of, of the United States, though not from the elite ruling class. Amen. I was, as you know, uh, heavily involved in the struggle against apartheid South Africa. And of course, uh, it became an absolute cause celebre uh, in the United States, particularly amongst black people, for obvious reasons. Uh, 
how much of that is responsible for uh, people's feelings in the African-American community about what's happening in Gaza. Mandela said so many times that the apartheid in uh, Israel-Palestine is worse than the apartheid that incarcerated him for 27 years. Mandela said that uh, we will never be truly free until the Palestinian people are free. Has that got through to the black community in the United States? Absolutely. You know, as you know, George, I have a, um, a radio show on, uh, it's a WPFW, it's a Pacific uh, affiliation affiliate here in uh, Washington, D.C., of mostly black and left-leaning audience. And I've literally had, you know, I'm an independent, and of course, I criticize both parties. And occasionally I get a call from someone who says, you know, I'm for the Democrats, why are you criticizing them? I have had callers in the black community call me in recent weeks and months to apologize and say, Garland, I was wrong you were right. The Democrats are every bit as bad as, the, as you said they were. So what I think you're looking at in, um, in, in the black community in America is people who are not necessarily going to vote for the Republicans, but they're going to stay home. They're not voting for the Democrats. And, you know, if, as the polls say, Donald Trump is able to get somewhere between eight and 20 percent of the uh, of the black vote in the Democrats. And of course, they're going to get, let's say, another 10 percent stay home. It's over for the Democrats. They're part, you'll have to go to a museum to find a, a, a Democratic politician if they lose the level of black voting that appears to be walking away from them. Of course, you've got to add the um, the false promises and the neoliberal policies that have so hurt the black community, which is working class, um, working poor and poor. One of the great ironies of my lifetime, actually, is to see a carefully calibrated chorus of Democrats saying that this next election is about democracy. You have to save democracy. That democracy itself will be murdered if Joe Biden doesn't get uh, your vote. At the same time as doing literally everything, unimaginable things, like seeking to imprison uh, their number one rival. At what point does this cognitive dissonance set in, uh, in uh, am amongst the Democratic voting base? How can it be democratic when you've done and are doing everything to strangle democracy in order to get reelected? Well, and you have to add something else that a lot of people outside of the country, uh, U.S., may not know about, and that is that uh, there are several other people in the Democratic Party, Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips, a few others, who are running against Joe Biden in the primaries. Four states, North Carolina, Florida, Massachusetts, and Tennessee, have decided that in the primaries, the only name they're going to put on the ballot is Joe Biden. So we have four states in the Democratic primaries who've already said the good news is we're going to have a primary election. The bad news is, as you know, you literally see this on comedies about Banana Republic, comedy movies, there will be one name on the ballot, Joe Biden. So Joe Biden is going to, apparently, they are going to... Um, save, preserve, and fight for democracy, but they have no intention of actually practicing democracy. It is an extraordinary business. Uh, now, Hunter Biden was uh, uh, briefly uh, in Congress. Uh, someone asked him if he was on crack today. Uh, 
somebody else asked him, what kind of crack do you smoke? Uh, how, how embarrassing was all of that? Well, there was a hearing today, and um, it was it's called a markup hearing. But basically, um, Hunter Biden was subpoenaed to come before Congress to answer questions about his father's uh, denial of uh, being uh, affiliated with Hunter's business. Um, uh, and uh, he, Hunter Biden refused the subpoena. So now Congress was having a hearing to determine whether or not to have a vote. One, basically one um, group of, uh, one committee was having a hearing and they're going to determine where and when to have a vote before the full, full um, House of Representatives on holding um, uh, Hunter in contempt, and which of course is a criminal charge. Hunter Biden and his lawyers showed up today for some period of time. And of course, as you said, on the way out, it was a circus. It was a media circus. And the bottom line is this. Most Americans already understand what's going on here. They understand the criminality and the corruption and the implications of it. And uh, the bottom line as it comes down to now is that the diehard Joe Biden supporters now just look at it and say, sure, but we'll take a crooked criminal Joe Biden and his uh, drug addled son um, over Trump. It's not there's not even a discussion as to whether Joe Biden is guilty anymore because that ship sailed a long time ago. It's just a matter of whether you'll accept that Joe Biden is a criminal or whether you're 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 you have such a bad case of Trump derangement syndrome that you're going to overlook his criminality or and in fact uh, accept it. What of the the Zion Don uh, as uh, he's known? You couldn't slip sixpence between them. Uh, on the Israel-Palestine question, of course, as you can't between the Democrats and the Republicans. But on the big enchilada, which is still there, still big, what's going to happen in Ukraine? Is, is Trump still holding to the position, no more money, no more weapons, an end to the war in the Ukraine? Um, absolutely, he is. And the, the fact of the, uh, of the matter is, you know, and of course, I said this long ago, um, Trump was smart enough to know very, very early that in the long run, this was not going to be popular. And he's held on to the position. Um, and the, his position is growing. It's growing in his party and it's growing throughout the U.S. People are asking some obvious questions, namely, you know, are we really supposed to believe that the Zelensky regime wants to bring, what, five to 10 million Eastern Ukrainians and Crimeans back into Ukraine, where it is literally illegal to speak their native and ethnic language? It is literally illegal for them to practice the religion that they practice. We're supposed to believe that Zelensky wants to repatriate those people. And then, this is the wonderful part, and then Zelensky immediately after the war, because we know this is a democracy, right? He's going to have an election and allow 10 million Russian-speaking people to suddenly vote, and they're going to vote in a pro-Russian uh, president. The idea, the, the, that, that narrative, when you run it down to what they're actually telling us, is so preposterous that people are starting to wake up and say, A, this doesn't make sense, B, why, why is it costing my all of my money, and C, you know, when is this going to be over? Because I feel threatened by nuclear war. This thing is going bad, and the Biden administration seems like they're trying to drift away from it, too. Now, this last question might be lighthearted, or it might be the most important question I've ever asked and you've ever answered. There seems to be aliens running around 
in, I think it was in Phoenix, uh, where else, arising from the, the ashes, uh, there's, a, there's a jellyfish UFO popping up everywhere. Should we be worried? Are they trying to tell us something? Well, you know, we the, a, a week or so ago, it was Miami. There were allegedly aliens running around a mall in Miami. Um, you know, these things, are, I, I hate to say it, I think they're kind of a fun distraction from, you know, nuclear war. Um, you know, the, basically, the only exciting um, news that we get that isn't horrifying people is either aliens or something to do with Taylor Swift. I think at some point they're going to meld the two and either Taylor Swift, Swift will be an alien or the aliens will be taking Taylor Swift away. But that's where we are now in America. I'm glad for that because every time I turn on the news, you know, there's no siren saying that the nuclear missiles are coming. So I'll take aliens right now over some of the far worse things that we could be reporting. Or even Taylor Swift. Garland yeah, Nixon, Swift. as always, thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. What a guy. I'm well past my break time. I'll take it very briefly. After that, we've got our favorite professor from Europe, Dr. George Samuli. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. George Samuli is the senior research fellow at the Global Policy Institute and author of Bombs for Peace, NATO's humanitarian war on Yugoslavia. Like me, he has a very close interest in what's going on in Serbia right now, where a color revolution, albeit a very pallid one, is uh, underway. Let's start with that one, if we may, uh, George. It's a pretty half-hearted, half-cocked attempt uh, to undo the result. Uh, of the Serbian elections. Uh, should we stop worrying about it or is the playbook still open? Well, I, I, it is indeed uh, half-hearted, George. Um, the problem with the, uh, the, the anti-Vucic forces who came out en masse is that they got a half-hearted support from the West Whereas the, the Germans, you know, with this crazy woman who runs their foreign policy, Annalena Baerbock, clearly came out in support of them and said, yeah, this is outrageous, unacceptable what Vucic has done. The Americans uh, were much more ambivalent and seemed to side with uh, Vucic against the protesters. So why are the Americans doing this? Well, they see Vucic as really their, their best means of getting Serbia on board for U.S. foreign policy. They think that Vucic, with his credentials, he had worked for Milosevic, he's supposedly a Serbian nationalist, he had been a member of the uh, uh, Sheshels party. He is the best means of getting Serbia to accept Kosovo, uh, the independence of Kosovo, and getting Serbia on board for NATO's anti-Russian policy. They think that, the Americans think that if you try to get him out and get one of these um, uh, fake, artificially created liberals in charge, they'll never be able to persuade the Serbs to accept uh, Kosovo. They'll never be able to, uh, the loss of Kosovo, they'll never be able to accept, the, uh, uh, force the Serbs to give up on Russia. 
So this is their, their, their bet. And that's why the Americans have been pushing Vucic and have not really been that enthusiastic by any of the um, anti-Vucic uh, protests. But they haven't been successful uh, so far. Uh, Vucic has completely resisted uh, their anti-Russian imprecations, sanctions against Russia and so on. Uh, and that's because a very substantial proportion of these Serbian people are very sympathetic to Russia. I know this myself, spend a lot of time there. Uh, but almost everybody in Serbia would revolt against selling out Kosovo. So it may be a forlorn hope on Joe Biden's part. It is a forlorn hope. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that, you know, unfortunately, the, the Serbian political leadership is is, I think, very insipid, very weak and useless, and would probably go along with um, NATO's uh, entreaties, you know, just do this, do this, and we'll reward you, we'll get you, fast track you into uh, the EU, um, Just, but just follow us on our foreign policy. And, you know, the politicians would be happy to go along with it. The public, however, is absolutely adamantly uh, opposed and that's why the, none of these plans really works out. I mean, Vucic makes, you know, these occasional odd comments like, well, you know, we have to think about our future, you know, our future is it with the EU. Maybe, you know, maybe we, we're gonna, we can help Ukraine. Maybe I, I don't really mind if maybe some Serbian uh, weapons end up in Ukraine. And then right away there is outrage among the Serbian public and uh, and nothing much happens. So, uh you know, it's it's a problem that yes, you you have a political elite that really they they, they look to the EU uh, uh, and, and NATO as the future, but um, the overwhelmingly the public is uh, very pro-Russian uh, because Russia has been consistently uh, supporting Serbia, and they will not sign off on the loss of Kosovo. It just cannot happen. You know, even after all these years, they will not accept that. God bless them. Uh, what about France, George? Uh, what can you tell us, if there's anything to tell, uh, about this new uh, boy uh, who is Prime Minister of France? Uh, is that because it's not important to be the Prime Minister of France? Or could they not find anyone who had actually ever done a job before? In this case, I, it's hard to figure out what... Um this uh, guy's um, credentials are. He's never held any senior ministerial position. You know, he was briefly um, minister for education. He was also a spokesperson for the uh, government. Um, it's hard to see what he has going for him other than that he's a kind of Macron's uh, mini-me. He's, you know, he's like Macron. I mean, he's a kind of, he's a younger version of Macron, a sort of fairly vacuous character. Um Nothing much uh, to be said uh, for him. Um, good looking in a way. And of course, he's gay, which makes him somehow um, a bit trendy and somehow fashionable. Um, but, <laughs> they, but but other than that, it's, it's hard to know what Macron thinks he, he's doing other than he thinks, well, he's my uh, successor, you know, because he's just like me. Uh, France has a real problem uh, on its hands, which is that everything that um, Macron has been doing ever since he came to power in, in 2017 has been uh, geared towards preventing uh, Marine Le Pen 
from coming to power. Um, but she's doing rather well in the polls, certainly ahead of him um, in the polls, certainly for the European parliamentary elections. And it could, you know, he, he doesn't want his legacy to be that after he departs, um, Marine Le Pen takes over. So he's scrambling around, but it's hard to see how this guy it will be the person to um, uh, to stop Marine Le Pen. Well, uh, I predict that uh, Le Pen will win the European parliamentary elections in France. Uh, I'm in France right now. Uh, and yeah. that's uh, certainly how it feels to me. You, you think, yeah, so think so too? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they've been, you know, the, the French elites have been trying to whip up this fear about Le Pen now for at least 20 years, you know, but the, the trick has got old. You know, you can't just keep doing it. And it's like, you know, oh, you know, Le Pen, Le Pen is, you know, becoming then, you know, France goes fascist. Uh, you know, it, the, the, you know, all, all of the French elites have been doing this, you know, starting from uh, Mitterrand and, of course, Marine Le Pen's uh, father. But now it's it's kind of boring and it's lost um, its, uh, its credibility. And I think the French no longer are afraid of Le Pen. And I think that uh, I, I think she'll win. And, and it's clear that the, if you just look at how, how she's doing in the polls, she's never done as well as this. And, and so therefore it, it shows that the whole thing of, you know, we, France can't go fascist is just, you know, that's it. It's just an old, you know, it's an old trick. It's gone. It's a little like with with Trump. You know, you can, how long can you go on saying Trump's a fascist, Trump's Hitler, Trump's Nazi, Trump will take away our freedoms. It isn't working. And, and, and you know, you, you've, got, you've got to come up with something a little bit better. Now, all eyes will be on uh, The Hague. Uh, tomorrow, uh, I, I'm saying, not everyone agrees with me, uh, that if the court were to find in favor of South Africa's uh, motion, uh, that uh, most European governments, if not them all, would have to, as a matter of law, reverse course in relation to Israel in this uh, campaign in Gaza and for that matter in the West Bank. Do you see it that way? I, I'm, I'm not sure that I do. Um, first of all, I think there is a, a considerable hurdle that South Africa will have to meet because, um, you know, the the judges, I think they, t they do tend to vote according to the government that sent them there. So there's going to be, obviously, the the, the the countries that are uh, overwhelmingly Muslim, they'll they'll favor uh, South Africa. But, you know, you've got the United States and the UK. Obviously, they're going to vote against. Um, I don't know how France is going to vote, but I think there's a good chance that France will also vote um, against. Um, and then you've got how Russia and China will vote. Well, Russia has a very complicated relationship with Israel. Um, I, I actually think that I have my doubts that Russia will um, support South Africa, and then China. You know, you know, we've had all these tribunals over the years, these fake, phony uh, tribunals, uh, claiming that uh, China uh, is committing um, genocide against the Uyghurs. So China doesn't really want to go down the path of, um, you know, lending credibility to uh, uh, bringing genocide charges against states, because China thinks, well, somebody's going to do that to us. Uh, down the road. So 
I, I, I don't know whether the, the the votes are there. They're going to have. They're going to be. There are 15 judges, and I think they're going to add two more judges. So that's that's 17 judges. They're going to need nine judges for it um, to go forward. Um, I'm not sure whether the the votes are there, um, but but then you know, I mean, even if it, it goes forward, that's just simply a preliminary finding. You know, then it it doesn't really address the the actual, um, you know, the, the legal uh, niceties of the case, which is going to take years and years to resolve. Um, but I think if, if, they, if, if the, the, the World Court at least says there is prima facie a case for genocide, I think that's going to have an impact. I'm not sure that it's, uh, it's going to alter um, uh, too, too many uh, states' policies, at least in Europe. Finally, George, uh, the situation in Ukraine on the ground, the military situation, uh, goes from bad to worse for uh, Zelensky. He's effectively run out of money and run out of soldiers. Um, they've, they've, they've pressed old men. Uh, they've pressed young boys. They've pressed women. They've even pressed pregnant women uh, into combat. Uh, five millions uh, of their people have fled and sure ain't going back. I spoke to uh, a couple, a Ukrainian couple, just the other night. Uh, the last thing in the world, I mean, they think they're lucky stars that they are in France. They will never go back, certainly not while there's a war on. Uh, so uh, if you run out of weapons, run out of money, run out of soldiers, must only be a matter of time before you run out of town, no? Well, one would hope so. Um, but it, it, it's clear that um, NATO and the United States are doubling down. Um, they're going to come up with some money from the United States with the, in these budget negotiations. I'm, I'm not sure it's going to be $60 billion, but they'll come up with some money. Um, and then there is all this talk about this $300 billion of... Um, Russian uh, central bank reserves, and the Americans are clearly pushing the Europeans into handing that over to Ukraine. I mean, the Europeans are resisting, or whatever that means. We we know the Europeans never really resist the Americans very much. So they're going to gonna give them some money. And I think, you know, the, the, the Americans are going to pull, uh, you know, a surprise at the uh, the NATO summit in, uh, in Washington uh, in July. I think they're going to try and push for Ukraine um, into NATO. Uh, I think the Biden administration is just absolutely demented. I mean, it, it's run by kind of de demented uh, figurehead, and and there's just simply no no restraint on it. I mean, I think I think they're going to try and do something so insane as uh, as as pressing uh, Ukraine uh, into NATO, saying this is a an emergency situation. NATO will have to just abandon uh, the rules that it's as governed as the new membership. Uh, we need to uh, get Ukraine in. I mean, a lot of people disagree with me, but I, I mean, do think that's going to be the July surprise at the summit. The Russians will have to finish the war before July then. I think so. I absolutely think they should do it because if they don't, I think that's going to be an unpleasant surprise coming to them. for the, the, the This will be the 75th birthday and this is going to be NATO's present to itself. Here, we've done something for our 75th birthday party. We've brought Ukraine in. <laughs> we, we, we've started World War III. Uh, happy exactly. birthday. That's our, that's our little George, present for ourselves. As, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's right out of Dr. Strangelove, that one. You can almost hear Peter Sellers' voice quivering. George Samuli, uh, Senior Research Fellow at the Global Policy Institute. Always a pleasure, a delight, actually. Thank, thank you very much, George. And hear you. Thanks uh, very much for uh, joining us. Uh, a quick break, then your calls. Stay tuned. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Another important action announcement. Uh, London, March, on Saturday the 13th at 12 noon at Bank Junction, London, EC3. Now, that is very, very important. And there's one the following week, which I'll be at. Uh, in Birmingham, the big anti-war demo in Birmingham. Uh, on the line is Simon in Florida, who wants to talk about the ICJ and Israeli weapons. Go ahead, Professor. What would you like to say? Greetings to you, Mr. Galloway, and to your worldwide audience once again. Um, my 33rd appearance of you, so I'm going to have to go into the York right from now on. And... Um, I would like to suggest that there's some other some other aspects of these events which are going to unfold over the next couple of days that your audience members and many others will be able to watch either using the UN Web TV or the ICJ website where the proceedings will be broadcast in both French and English. So it should be quite accessible, at least for your UK audience. But we've got to consider... If the um, issue of the genocide is not embraced by the judges and is re rejected on one or other technical grounds, then what it might do, I would suggest, is demonstrate to the global south that truly the rules of the rules-based order don't apply to them. And that in itself, in a large-scale geopolitical point, particularly in line with what the Chinese and the Russians are telling them, is extremely significant. Now, if, on the other hand, the judges do decide that it's personally impossible for them to make this decision because it will cast them in the light of the Supreme Court of America judges who upheld slavery with the Dred Scott decision in the 1850s, in the United States of America, then the issue then becomes one of enforcement. And since the court doesn't have the option of sending out global police or the bailiffs to um, seize Mr. Netanyahu's sofa, that then falls upon other signatories of the convention. Now, once again, 
you have the potential if a large number of NATO members decline to enforce this first step, which is essentially an injunction before making a final decision on the merits, then that is also going to undermine the standing of all of those uh, golden billion countries for not actually enforcing the rules that they themselves wrote. So in both of those scenarios, it's very hard to see how the West really comes out of this as a winner. Now, um, your audience might like to know, anybody who's going to be um, in or around London uh, 10 days from now, that there will be, in fact, several Israeli arms manufacturers exhibiting their products having recently been displayed in the Gaza Strip at the DefenseIQ.com Armoured Vehicle Exhibition in, of all places, Twickenham, headed up by a British Army general starting on the 20th of January. And people can find the details of that at defence, with a C, correctly spelled, IQ.com. And um, in the light of the BDS motion that's passed in the House of Parliament today, it makes one start to think just quite what the good Germans would have done if they had all their legal recourses shut off. How splendid uh, an analogy, I must say, entirely apt uh, analogy. I, I, I feel kind of alone on the show tonight in entertaining the hope uh, that the judges will not want to be cast in the light of the pro-slavery Supreme Court prior to the American Civil War, and that they, uh, that they cannot dismiss the case. Uh, they cannot uh, dismiss it out of hand, uh, and that there are places, I think including Washington, I'm certain included, including uh, David Cameron's foreign office in London, that would quite like somebody else to get them out of this hole. And a judgment, uh, albeit a preliminary one, a prima facie one, uh, that called on Israel to cease and desist would help a lot of places. France, definitely. Uh, England, London, uh, I'm, I'm certain, at least in the face of David Cameron. Joe Biden, I'm not so sure. But he must be very anxious, Simon, about how close the presidential election now is and how catastrophic uh, everything uh, could turn out. I mean, what if the 30,000 becomes 100,000? What if it becomes 300,000? What if there's uh, rivers of blood on TV, on his watch, caused by weapons he gave? Do you feel me? Well, I, I, I do hear exactly what you're saying, and it's very interesting that the Israeli Attorney General has just yesterday issued a warning to government ministers that they could be held responsible, even if it was deemed that genocide hadn't in fact occurred, hypothetically, if that were to be decided, that 
they might be found guilty and would be subject to punishment for incitement to commit genocide, which is both within the convention and also extraordinarily included within Israeli domestic law to such an extent that he's actually indicated that investigations have been opened against two members of the Knesset and one member of the sitting government. So they're clearly trying to, um, you know, at least demonstrate that whilst they claim they're not doing what would be eventually decided upon, that they're even holding those who one could argue were advocating for that conceptual policy to be enacted, that even those people will be held responsible. Because many of your audience will recall that's how the people who instigated the genocide in Rwanda were found guilty was because they had been making radio broadcasts inciting genocide. But one wonders what Tony Blair will do with his concept of not only punishing genocide, but also operating on the responsibility to protect, which in theory would not only authorize countries like Egypt and Turkey to militarily intervene, but would actually oblige them, compel them to do so. Simon in Florida, you are a national treasure, certainly in the UK, I hope one day at least in the United States itself. Arif is in Birmingham. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Arif. George, I've followed you for many, many years, sir. I don't think, in my opinion, there's a, a, a person who I've ever come across that stands his ground. And uh, I remember the case you took into the States and you challenged them. And you came back with victory, uh, with the false allegations that made against you. But that, besides the point, George, George, I'm just looking at another dimension in this uh, Gaza war conflict. And that's, could this be a religious conflict in the guise of it's not Islam versus Christianity versus Judaism, but an ideology, a, a Zionist ideology in establishing their their leader that is supposed to come into, in the future and they will then govern and rule from Israel as we know today. Obviously, it's common knowledge that they have plans to expand the borders of Israel and uh, some of their actual wording from the river you know, the actual, when they when people are chanting out from the river to the night, well, I'm sure you've come across it, but what you I'm trying see, to say is that, yeah, 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 that was originally coined by the Zionists themselves. Um, but yes. the point I'm trying to and make they, is... And, and they might not have, and, and they might not have meant the Jordan River, because as I think you're alluding, uh, their flag, the two lines at the top and bottom right. of their flag, uh, designate the rivers Nile and the Euphrates in Iraq. Uh, so That's the right. original Zionists uh, believed that all of that land from the Nile in Egypt to the Euphrates in Iraq. Of course, they would love that, but they're not capable of achieving that, Arif. And it's important sure. not to, uh, uh, to imbue uh, one's opponent uh, with false uh, prowess. They cannot even control Gaza. And they will never be able to control it. They will never build their beachfront properties. They will never be able to control the West Bank. They can kill, they can destroy, 
but they will never be free from the resistance uh, of the Palestinian people. So the idea that they're going to go on and conquer uh, Jordan and half of Iraq, going to conquer half of Egypt up to the River Nile, is for the birds. It's in their dreams, no doubt. It's in their ideology, for sure. The Zionists are no more and no less than a nationalist ideology. They are nothing whatsoever to do with religion. The founders of Zionism were all, to a man, atheists. Anybody who thinks Netanyahu is religious hasn't looked too closely into his private life. Uh, or that of his family for that matter. There's nothing religious about Netanyahu. These people are extreme nationalists, exceptionalists. Some Americans believe in American exceptionalism. The Zionists believe in Jewish exceptionalism. And all nobody in truth is exceptional. God didn't give anybody anything, didn't give any country to anybody. God never decided that you were better than someone else. On the contrary, God made all men and women equal, not one superior to the other, not one exceptional and the other unexceptional. God didn't decide that a Palestinian child's blood is worth less uh, than the blood of an Israeli or a Parisian or a Londoner, that's a, a blasphemy against God. So there's nothing religious about it. It's about land. It's about nationalist supremacy, ethno-religious supremacy on the land of Palestine. And the Europeans colonized Palestine in the same way that the Europeans colonized South Africa. That's why tomorrow's case is so piquant, so fitting, so apt. The victims of white European colonialism are coming to the aid of other victims of white European colonialism. And they're doing the whole world a signal service. All hail the Republic of South Africa. Last call, Lass or Lassie in Sweden on Israeli lies. Go ahead, sir. Yes, thank you. I'm a second time caller. Yes, I would like you to talk a little about the barrage of lies that has uh, come from Israel. And uh, then if you could touch a little bit, uh, educate people about the Dahia doctrine uh, developed by uh, this general Gadi Eisenkot. Uh, regarding the lies, I, uh, I have noted the 40 beheaded babies, uh, babies in a laundry line that was debunked by an Israeli journalist, uh, the Hamas mass rapes was debunked by the Jewish journalists, Aaron Maté and Max Blumenthal, uh, and, and more. Can you uh, remember any more? Uh, 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 well, uh, I'll tell you, I'll, yeah, well, thanks uh, for that and giving me the opportunity to sum up uh, thus. First of all, Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté are, to me, not just American heroes. Uh, they are global 
heroes with their skill, their forensic journalism, but above all their courage. As an American Jew and a Canadian Jew, the case of Mate, whose father uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust, the level of heroism required to take the stand that they have, the level of skill and professionalism that is required to debunk the billion-dollar empire of the New York Times, to literally deconstruct their fake story uh, about uh, the, the use of mass rape uh, on uh, October 7, the kind of journalistic ability, uh, I can only marvel at it. I said today, uh, talking of Marvel, uh, they were like uh, Superman and Batman teaming up to fight for truth, justice, and the humanitarian way. And I meant every word of it. I have never been in such awe in front of journalists as I am in front of those two. Aaron, I don't know. Max, I know well and love him and his wife. Uh, very much indeed. I, I, I'm becoming emotional talking about them. You have to know the kind of venom which they, as Jewish heroes, are having to stand and face. You think the venom that comes at me is fierce and vile and poisonous and toxic? It is. Can you imagine? what it is to be a Jew standing up against these people, standing up against Zionism, standing up against genocide, and not just standing up, not just talking, but undermining fatally the big lies that you have alluded uh, to. I only have time to say this, I can't deal uh, in detail, uh, with the questions that you asked, maybe call back another time and we can discuss it further. When I first became involved in this issue, uh, which would be uh, in the middle of the 1970s, so long ago in anybody's currency, the quality of Zionist propaganda was so much higher and so different in quality uh, to what we have now, Zionists in those days claimed that they were the left, they were the socialists, that they had a powerful trade union which owned a bank, that they had kibbutz, that they invited young people to come and experience free love, communal living, share your women, share your uh, cooking, share your eating, everyone looking after everyone's children, they painted a picture, a utopian picture of a kind of almost primitive communist uh, idea. That's the level that they were at. The Israeli Labour Party, which governed then, was a member of the misnamed, but still named, Socialist International. In truth, they were in bed with apartheid South Africa, in truth, they were in bed with every gold-toothed generalissimo tyrant in Latin America. In truth, uh, they were stealing people's lands on which to build their uh, kibbutz. Uh, in truth, they were 
on an entirely racist basis, reducing not just the Arab population of Palestine, Israel, to second-class status, but even the black Jews that had come from Ethiopia were illegally sterilized, as has now been found by the Israeli courts, illegally sterilized so that they would not reproduce and Israel wouldn't have to look at the faces of black Jews. The racism which suppurates, festers at the very core of the Zionist idea and the Zionist project was carefully hidden in the past. And one would be invited to tea, as I often was, in a cafe at Leicester Square Station by admittedly elderly men that were, uh, whose politics on every other issue was just like mine, had the same attitude to the international position that existed in the 1970s, the 1980s. These were people with linen badges and red stars on their lapel who were members of uh, parties that no longer even exist in Israel, but then were in the government, albeit as junior uh, partners. But now, when you look at the Zionist narrative now, when you look at the Zionist discourse now, it is straight out of Der Stormer, the hysterical, venomous, fascist rag, the editor of which was hanged at Nuremberg, Julius Streicher. It is straight out of Goebbels. It is straight out of Streicher. It is unadulterated, racist filth. That's how far down Zionism and its state of Israel has fallen. I don't know if I'll ever see a free Palestine. I'm getting on. But I'm absolutely sure that my children and your children will one day walk in a free Palestine from the river to the sea in which all Jews, Christians and Muslims live as equal citizens under the law just like we fought for in the Republic of South Africa. Hamandla, long live South Africa. Viva ANC, viva Nelson Mandela, whose spirit will be in the court in The Hague tomorrow. Thanks for watching. I'm back on Sunday with episode 308. Can you believe it? And millions are watching and calling from Denmark, from Sweden, from Uruguay, from the US, from Canada, from England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland. It's a global university, all right. See you Sunday. See you.